0: We'll be looking at our confession again this evening, chapter 26, paragraph 9. And you can open with me in God's Word to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. funny to be able to look out and uh, tell who sat out in the sunshine all day and who didn't. Acts twenty twenty eight. I want to begin our study with this one verse. We looked at it last Lord's day and we'll read it again later just as a reminder of the sobriety with which we ought to consider the The doctrine of the church. Paul told the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Notice we have a reference to the church of God. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. So anytime we address matters of church government, of officers, of the functions of the church, all of that falls under ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. But here we learn that the church, whether we're thinking universal or local, is God's church. It's not my church and it's not your church in an ultimate sense. It belongs to God. And so we're studying matters that concern the church. Which church belongs to God? So it's not a toy. It's not a light thing. This is not a concept that is open to new and creative ideas or imaginations or inventions. In what way would we say that the church is God's church? Paul says that it's the church which He obtained with His own blood. So He, in this text, He, God, purchased, obtained the church with his blood. Now we ask does God have blood? Well, this is clearly a reference to the blood shedding of Jesus Christ, God incarnate on the cross. In that sense, with the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature united in one person, God the Son pouring out his blood, it is perfectly appropriate, according to scriptural language, to refer to that blood as the blood of God. In pouring out His blood, and thus His life, Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of God's justice, which held us captive, so we have been released. But again, like we saw this morning, that doesn't mean we're released into the wild. Rather, we're released or redeemed for God. Purchased by God. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave His life to obtain the church of God for God. Not only does the church belong to God, but it belongs to God through the purchasing power of the blood of His Son. And so we don't approach ecclesiology in any point of it, any of it. Like we're a marketing team trying to figure out how we might best advertise a gathering or an assembly for outsiders to to draw a particular demographic of people. But we approach ecclesiology as stewards. We've been given a stewardship that is the church of God purchased with His blood. The health and safety of the blood-bought bride of the Son of God has been handed to us as stewards to take care of. And so we have to come, when we study ecclesiology, we come humbly to be taught by God. Not to teach Him what we'll do with His church, but to ask Him, what would You have us to do with Your church? We come to receive instruction. So that being said, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll ask that the Spirit of God would would do that for us from His Word. Father, we thank You for the bloodshedding of Your Son, the purchase of a church, the calling that we've received into this church, and the salvation that we've received We ask that You'd send Your Holy Spirit to teach us from Your Word about how to conduct the affairs of the church. I pray that You'd help us, if nothing else, Lord, help us to see that this is a serious matter. Help us to see the sufficiency of Your Word in all things pertaining to Your church. And I pray that, once again, You'd cause us to fall in love with Yourself, with Your Son, with Your church, with Your Word, that we would... Come to adore all of these things which are yours. These are uh, like treasures in your kingdom. And we, we ought to be delighted to be able to participate in these things. Do that for us and we'll glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in the confession, we're still watching how the authority of Christ, the head of the church, has been delegated to the church and is administered in the church. That, that is sort of the overarching concept of everything. Christ is head of the church, and then He's called us to be a part of His church, and He's given us His Word, and He's, in His Word, told us how to manage the affairs of His church. The Father gives authority to Christ. Christ gives authority and power to congregations. and As we've seen, congregations use their authority to welcome and remove members as well as appoint officers. And so tonight we're going to see in paragraph 9 specifically how a church goes about using the authority given to her by Christ in the selection and appointment of officers. I'll say from the outset, in in most congregations uh, that I've experienced or been a part of or seen, affairs like this are just sort of carried out with not a whole lot of explanation, not a whole lot of biblical foundation. Uh, People just sort of go with the flow and how things are done, but rarely is the Bible taken out and, and, and it is explained. This is why we do what we do, and so that the congregation can become... Uh, Educated on the matter from God's Word. I think the reason for that is because in most churches, God's Word is irrelevant in these matters. Um, And we we don't want to be one of those churches. We want to do things the way that God commands us to do. And I think our confession summarizes what God's Word teaches well. So uh, the opening words of this paragraph, paragraph 9, it says, "...the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person." So again, we're answering the question, how does a church go about the process of choosing its officers? We talked last week about how we all know churches who've gone without officers, even pastors. Our own church has not always had the officers that it now has. And in the future, we assume we will be appointing new officers in our church, not new as in we get rid of the old ones, but in addition to what we have as we grow, we want to bring in other elders and deacons. So the question is, how do we go about that process? And I'll add this as sort of an aside as well. There are minutiae that come into this matter that would, would be dealt with as we moved into the particular process in the future that are not addressed in the confession. So I'm not going to go uh, way out, on a rabbit trail to define step one, step two, step three processes like that. This lays out a general process, but I think it is interesting. Do we appoint a search committee? The church selects a group of men or women or both, and we say, here, it's y'all's job to find us a pastor. It's y'all's job to find us a deacon. Let us know what you find when you get done. Is that, is that how we ought to do it? Or do we, we put out an ad on Indeed.com? In search of church, in search of pastor, church, in search of deacons. There are websites that are like the Christian Indeed, where churches put out uh, bulletins. We, we're in need of a pastor, youth pastor, music pastor, whatever. Or, as is uh, the case in a lot of churches, do we just call a pastor somewhere else in a church that we know already has a church and already has a job? but we just sort of put a bug in his ear. You know, the Lord really impressed it upon my heart that maybe you'd like to come and pastor our church, and it might just so happen that we pay you more than you're being paid where you are. that, That happens a lot. All of a sudden, you know, the Lord begins to whisper and speak to men and call them elsewhere because they got a phone call. Is that how we should do it? Or maybe we just, when it comes to deacons, maybe we just sort of look around, everybody in the congregation look around and try to pick out some men that seem to be regularly consistent in their attendance to church, And we say, well, these men are here all the time. They might as well be a deacon. Is that how we do it? Well, our confession reads, the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person. The first thing we see is that Christ has appointed the way for calling persons, that is men, to the office of elder and deacon. This is not something we have to run off and try to figure out. He's told us. He's revealed it to us in His Word. As we saw before, in His Word, we have His mind on the matter. It's not going to be written down like the instructions that we would read to assemble a desk, but it is contained in the Word nonetheless. The Scriptures are sufficient to tell us how to do this. And ultimately, that is all that matters in the process. What has Christ said in His Word about how to appoint officers? A lot of people think this is really insignificant as long as officers are appointed. As a matter of fact, most churches would see having a man in the office as more significant than the process to get him there so that they'll almost say, without saying it, we don't care how you get them or where you get them, just get somebody because we're tired of doing this. That, that, that really happens in a lot of churches. I would say that's, that's not true. It is not better to have somebody in an office Uh, than uh, to go by the process. The process is what God wants us to do. He wants us to submit to His Word. He wants us to obey Him. And through obedience, He gives to His church what is needed. Is Christ the head of the church or not? We would say He is. Therefore, we want His way. So we're looking for the way appointed by Him. And we see right out of the gate that Christ's way of appointment only takes into its crosshairs certain kinds of men. The Lord Jesus Christ has appointed a way for calling only such persons as He, by His Holy Spirit, has fitted and gifted. That's the language of the confession. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted. A central and invisible aspect of Christ's method bringing men into an office in the church begins with the work of the Holy Spirit to prepare those men beforehand. They are fitted and gifted, as we'll see, by the Holy Spirit. The office, whether it be elder or deacon, the office does not qualify a man. The office does not make a man an elder or a deacon. Entering into an office does not convey any gifts or fitness. To a man. We're looking for those fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Those are the men that we then look for to bring into office. We have to keep our eyes open to find men already fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of Christ. Now, if I had to distinguish between these words, fitted and gifted, I would use the term fitted to refer to the qualifications required for the office. And I would use gifted to refer to unique spiritual gifts that are going to be used in the exercise of the office. Why? Well, because typically when we see gifted, we think about the lists of spiritual gifts that we see in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and elsewhere, that are going to be specific to a person. Certain people have gifts that other people don't have. The qualifications required for the offices of elder and deacon are not primarily dealing with spiritual gifts, but various graces given by the Spirit and manifested in their lives. So, as for being fitted for the office, we have passages of Scripture like, and we'll read these, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. So let's look at this. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. And I'm not going to add very much comment in these portions of Scripture. I just want to read them. I want you to see where they are. We'll deal first with the qualifications for an elder thinking under the the word of the confession, fitted. This man has been fitted. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now let's look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. We'll see some overlap here. Titus 1 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent. Or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then First Peter 5, we have another brief list. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now from these lists, we could compile 31 different qualifications for the office of an elder. If a man is considered or is to be considered called by Christ, then we expect to see his fitness for the office, his his ability and capability for the office Manifested in these ways. He has to be able to refute error, exhort in sound doctrine, able to teach. He must be eager to serve, not reluctant. "...characterized by godly desire, spirit appointed, not one who lords his power, sensible or prudent, self-disciplined, not greedy, an example to the flock, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, a lover of what is good, temperate, upright, gentle, not self-willed, hospitable, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a new convert, above reproach, Good reputation, devout, respectable, faithful to the Word, children behaved, managing his household well, and a one-woman man. That's the qualifications for, an offer, for the office of elder. Now then we come to deacons. We turn back to 1 Timothy 3. Picking up in verse 8. "...deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Now the ESV says their wives, it's literally the women, likewise must be dignified Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, why do I say that these things would render a man fitted for the office as opposed to gifted by the holy spirit because those things that we just listed are no more than is what than what is expected or required of every christian man these are not certain gifts given to a special and select few These are traits of godliness that ought to be found in some form in every Christian. The only distinction being that to be an elder, a man has to be able to teach. But even that, I would say, a man needs to be able to open the Word before his wife and children to some extent to at least help them to see the truth. No Christian, no Christian man has to have the gift of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to his wife to be a one-woman man. That's not a gift of the Spirit. That's just Christianity 101. No Christian man has to be gifted by the Holy Spirit for self-control. That's just a fruit of the Spirit to all believers. So we're not talking there about gifts. But there are additional gifts of the Holy Spirit that would fall into the category of gifted by the Holy Spirit that are, that are not things that we expect to see in every Christian Certain gifts are crucial to the offices of elder and deacon, respectively. Uh, Various kinds of what we would call word gifts, gifts of administration, gifts of oversight, are going to be very helpful in the office of an elder. Gifts of uh, helps and generosity and mercy are going to be very useful in the office of a deacon. Those are gifts. You might find a man who has all of the fitness for the office of elder, but maybe he doesn't have any word gifts. Well, that, that's just a Christian man. That doesn't mean he's called to be an elder just because he's very godly. I've had to ask fellow pastors, what do you do if you have a man who meets all of the qualifications of an elder? He just doesn't want to preach. They said, sounds like he got an excellent deacon. So I made him a deacon. Or we made him a deacon. He didn't, he didn't want to, to he didn't have the gifts of... of, of uh, Utterance, we might say, to, to exercise the office of an elder. But he had everything else. we got a good deacon. There's gifts and there's fitness for the office. We might can add to this gifts of providence. Given to a man from the womb or cultivated in his upbringing, which have been designed by God from the man's birth to prepare him for a particular office. Deacon or elder. Uh, superior uh, gifts of compassion and tenderness to be able to deal with people or... Uh, the like. Christ has a way of appointing men and he uses his Holy Spirit to do it. And when Christ, by his Spirit, has prepared men for the offices of the church, he makes it obvious by fitting them and gifting them with the things that are going to be needed for the office. So that when the, the plan would be when a man is brought into an office, nobody's really surprised. Everybody's thinking, Well, That just makes perfect sense. And we could could all see and recognize these particular gifts for this particular uh, office. But again, this is what Christ's doing. He does that. He gives those gifts. Back to the confession. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person, fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church. So now we're focusing in on elders. Where are these elders serving? They're serving in a church which shows us that Christ's appointed way to bring men into office in the local church is carried out in and by that local church. As I said last week, there are no elders or or pastors outside of a congregation, a specific congregation. I'm going to quote from James Renahan again several times from Edification and Beauty. He says, now he's referring to Benjamin Keach, who was one of the original signers of our confession, he says, Benjamin Keach argued that ordinary officers could not exist apart from the existence of a local church. So they're not guys just walking around, not a part of any church anywhere, who are deacons or pastors. If, if somebody says, I'm a deacon, you say, of what church? I'm an elder. Of what congregation? They always go together. He says also, ministers could not function without the call and approbation of a specific church. So, elders and deacons are not appointed outside the confines of a particular society of saints called a local church. And neither office has any authority outside of the specific church in which they have been appointed to serve. I can't go to any other church and say, listen, you need to listen to me because I'm an elder. Kyle can't go to any other church and say, I'll take care of your, your, your books. I'm a deacon. We don't have any authority anywhere outside of this congregation because this congregation has appointed us. Not only that, but it's implied here, what the Scripture teaches, namely that elders are, be to, are, are to be appointed from among the membership of a particular church. Now, I'll say this. There are certainly providential reasons why this may or may not have happened in some churches somewhere. That doesn't negate the fact that our aim ought to be to be biblical. What happened in the Scriptures and how can we follow that pattern from where we are? 1 Peter 5, 2, we read this, "...shepherd the flock of God that is among you." elders and the flock, shepherds and the flock together. Uh, People have said it before, elders ought to smell like sheep because they're with the flock, they're with their people, they're not from the outside. Elders are church members. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Notice, the Holy Spirit made them overseers in the flock. They didn't stand outside the flock watching over. They were in the flock as members exercising oversight. Quoting James Ranahan again, For the Baptists, membership in a local church... I love this. Membership in a local church was prerequisite for ministerial service in that church. A man cannot be called to office in a church unless he is first a member in that church. Anything less is disorderly. So for our forefathers, as they were writing our confession, they said elders are members first. Then they are to be appointed from among that congregation. They're not appointed by an outside body and then bestowed upon a congregation. Nobody can show up to us and say, hey, we've got some elders to deliver to you and you must submit to their authority. No. I think it's safe to say that <clears throat> this is a far cry from what most of us have seen in our lifetimes with regard to offices in the church. If you've been in any church setting in your life, especially Baptist churches. especially I don't, I don't know of many people who've grown up in a Baptist church that appointed that they could look at their pastor and say that man is from this congregation. It's almost never that way. It's almost always well. You want to get a man from the outside because if you get somebody from the inside, it'll cause this and that and families and blah blah blah. That's among Baptists. Many churches in our day find themselves in a position where this is all but impossible. Now, what I mean by that is they look around their congregation and they don't have a single man who even remotely fits the qualifications of an elder. That doesn't mean that there's no hope or there's no other recourse. There's, there's no other way or plan that a man might be brought into a congregation who is without. There, there are those. But it usually means that somewhere along the line, that church determined that it would depart from the biblical qualifications and duties of pastors, one of which is to teach faithful men so that they will be able to teach others also. That is a specific function of the office of an elder, to train up others. If, if a man dies, if I die, and there's nobody else who's even, rem- the congregation can't look at anybody and say, looks like you're up. I've not done my job. I've failed in my duties. It's important. This is very relevant to us, I think, and probably to most churches like ours, because we have had men serving as elders in other churches, or maybe they're in their last semester at seminary, and they'll get a hold of us through a call or email, and they'll say, hey, I would like to come to your church to be trained up as an elder and then be sent out to plant a church somewhere. They want to come here among us, under the expectation that when they get here, we'll start training them to be an elder, ordain them into the office of an elder, then send them out to plant a church. Well, that's backwards. First of all, and second of all, what what that does is that imposes this man's life plans upon a congregation. He doesn't have authority to do that. In these situations, we tell men, you are more than welcome to pack up your family and move here. And settle down and get a job and pursue membership in our congregation. And that's all we can promise. And we really can't even promise that you'll be welcomed into membership. We don't know you. Why is that? It's because it's the church who makes the decision to appoint elders. Not elders sitting in their office on the telephone. Yeah, come on. For a lot of men, it's a a notch in the belt. How many men have you trained up? How many men have you sent out? How many churches have you planted that, that sort of thing. That, that's not what we're after. We're after what does the Bible say? How, how can we follow what Scripture teaches? And I've said this to others and probably here. When you do things the biblical way, very often it takes a lot longer and it requires a lot more work than other methods. And that's why men don't want to do it. They don't want to go about that way. They don't want to, to come to the conclusion, maybe I'm not called to be a pastor. Maybe I'm not called to plant a church. A lot of men don't want to face that reality. They don't want to subject themselves to a congregation. Membership in a local church was a prerequisite for ministerial service in that church. Back to the confession. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself. Common suffrage means Voting by the vote of the church. So the church itself votes to call a man or bring a man into a particular office in that church. Now what does that show when the church has the say? It shows that Christ has the supreme authority, that He's given that authority, the keys of the kingdom, to the church. The church makes that decision. Now if we take this act of appointing church officers and we hand that authority or that duty over to some other body, we're saying to Christ, thank you for the keys of the kingdom, and then we toss them to somebody else and say, here, do this. That's not We can't do that. We've been given a stewardship. These men are selected by voting common suffrage and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer With imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein. Again, there's implicit in this is the reality that you might have a church set up that there are no elders yet. Well, in that case, you can't get the elders of that church to lay hands on that man. You more than likely are going to have to bring elders from another congregation um, to to do that ordination. Even then. Our Baptist forefathers would say those elders that come from another congregation to do that, they have no more authority in that new congregation than what that congregation allows them. So if that congregation says, we would like your elders to come and ordain an elder in our congregation, that's as far as it goes. Those elders have no more authority beyond that. So these men are to be solemnly set apart. We've looked at the word solemn before. It means religiously grave marked with pomp and sanctity. But the word solemn also implies a kind of ceremony. The word itself, a religious ceremonial atmosphere. That's where we get the idea of an ordination service. These men by the congregation are set apart by fasting and prayer with the imposition of hands of the elders, if there be any there. This is what we typically refer to as ordination An ordination is to be accompanied by prayer and fasting by the congregation. The Scriptures don't show us anything specifically about the things that we're mostly uh, used to, like ordination councils and, and ordination examinations and things like that. Those are the things that we usually think go with ordaining a man to the office, especially of an elder, Um, The interesting thing is what the Scriptures do say is by prayer and fasting, which is almost never a part of any ordination of of men in the office uh, that I'm aware of. There needs to be time set aside to seek God's wisdom in decision-making as well as God's blessing moving forward there, there, there comes a confidence over time as the congregation sets apart a man, approves a man, sees him prepared and prepares to ordain him there's a confidence in that it's not that you, you they're getting together to pray Lord tell us what to do because usually through the fitting and the gifting of the Holy Spirit and the the unanimous voice of the congregation, God has already made those things fairly clear but prayer and fasting also ought to accompany the whole process. In order to prepare and, and ask for God's blessing, moving forward, I'm I'm not against ordination councils and examinations. It's just uh, when I've asked uh, other brothers, you know, what are your thoughts on ordination councils? How how do you typically go about that? And he said, Well, that's right there in Scripture, beside going to seminary. <laughs> the elders, already present in a church, lay hands on the men who've been selected by the the church, and they. Ordained them, that's the word we use, ordained them to the office. Now, with the laying on of hands, if you're not familiar with that, you might say, What's up with that? Is that you know elder power going through the arms and and you know filling this man with gifts? No, that's not what it is. It's it's just a a a visual signification that the will of the church is being executed by those whose office it is to execute the will of the church. Now, the confession references two texts here. The first one is Acts 14.23. Some of these matters are a little different because we don't have apostles, but we still get a, a general idea. Acts 14.23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, this is Paul. He's planted churches. They don't have any previously established elders. At this time period, it was the apostle who would appoint or uh, designate elders for them in every church. But, and this is interesting, the word appointed, this is the appointed elders, means literally to stretch out the hand in the sense of either laying on hands or, more likely, extending your hand to vote in this situation. Now, if we're asking, well, how did the apostle uh, do that? Did he raise his own hand or did he get the congregation to raise their hands? We don't know. But again, the picture is that of raising the hand to vote or designate men as elders... And that appointment was accompanied by prayer and fasting. Why was the prayer and fasting present? To commit these men and these churches to the Lord. And then 1 Timothy 4.14 is referenced. Paul here is talking to Timothy. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So here it was the elders who laid their hands on Timothy. Now if you were just reading that text, you might say, it, it sounds like Timothy's giftedness was conveyed upon him when they laid their hands on him. To that I, I would respond in two ways. First would be, That might not be unlikely during the time of of still living apostles, where the apostles had the authority of Christ. Uh, We wouldn't expect that to continue today because there are no apostles. The second thing I would say was that it doesn't say that the gifts were given by the laying on of hands, but when they laid their hands on Him. In either case, having moved beyond the times of the apostles, we now carry on the work in less extraordinary ways while still seeking the help and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If we might move beyond the office of apostle, we never move beyond the need and help of the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing we see is that deacons get the same treatment. It says, "...and of a deacon, that he be chosen by the like suffrage... In other words, vote on him the same way, set apart by prayer, and the like imposition of hands... In other words, lay hands on a deacon just like you did an elder to signify the church's appointment of a man into the office... And the confession references Acts 6, which we read last week, and we can read it again. Acts chapter 6, the appointment of the proto-deacons. It doesn't say deacon in this passage, but most have have recognized this to be the the very first uh, example of what has now come to be known as the appointment of deacons. Verses 3 to 6, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, and a proselyte of Antioch, These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice the process. The church picked them out. The church picked men who already had a good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. doesn't say the apostles laid their hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and a good reputation and wisdom. Now the church already knew who these men were. The church chose the men. The apostles laid hands on them. And then sent them off to their task. And as we saw last week, because they followed this prescription, the word of the Lord was able to flourish through that early church. Now, I want to read another quote from James Renahan in this book, Edification and Beauty. In conclusion, it says, "In their implementation, he's speaking of the Baptists, and this is the reason this is important, is because." If you hold to a confession of faith, you want to know what the men who signed it meant when they put it together. Uh, This is not a document that is really open to our interpretation. There might be some some modern ways that it's implemented, but we don't get to say, well, they said this, but I'm just going to say that they meant this. We want to know what they meant. How did they put this into practice? So he's talking about their, their view. It says, in their implementation of the teaching of their confession... The particular Baptists were determined to follow the rule of Scripture. This principle is regularly demonstrated in their practice concerning church officers. The church, though it existed and could function, was incomplete without them. And we saw that last week. The, the fact that the Apostle went around and appointed elders in every town and all the churches is evidence that it's not, it's not good that a church be without officers. And then he closes with this. In the case of both offices, the church had priority over the office. As in the confession, the church calls men to serve and they fulfill their roles in response to the call of the assembly. The officers fulfilled their responsibilities for the benefits of the congregation. And, and the reason he ends that way is because he began with the historical conundrum. Did they hold to elder-led polity? Did they hold to a congregational polity? Well, when we read their documents and we read the confession, there was a, a blend, there was a mixture. Elder-led, congregational, but there he says the church, the assembly, has the priority over the office because it's the church who calls men to the office. When we follow our forefathers in submitting to the dictates of Scripture, we honor Christ's position as head of the church. And that doesn't mean if we do it this way, it's going to be really easy. As a matter of fact, when we follow the dictates of Scripture, we we pretty much guarantee that we're going to find ourselves in situations where we have to cry out to God to help us and to glorify Himself and His church. And that's what He wants, that's what He would have. While many have taken these matters into their own hands, and in so doing they only glorify their own creativity, may we be found walking the pathway long trodden by the faithful. And when we do that, when we follow the path of Scripture, then we can say in full sincerity and experientially, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You can't say that in sincerity until you've trusted upon the Word of God. We can say it in faith, but until we've walked it, and we can look back and we can say, Your Word is what kept me, what guided me, what told me where I stood, and what told me where to go. And that's where we want to be. So let's pray, and then we'll stand.